Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the situation at the southern border worsens, but the Biden administration resists calling it a crisis. Chelsea, one of Massachusetts communities hardest hit by COVID, gets shortchanged in the new COVID relief bill. And Latino entertainment professionals overlooked for this year's Oscars again. It's our Latinx Roundtable. Later in the show, the fried chicken sandwich food fight and bubbly sales gone flat. Our food and wine gurus weigh in. Most people who lose their sense of taste and and smell with COVID experience that as a temporary symptom that, you know, is restored um, afterwards. But a good number of people are going to have the permanent condition. But first, joining me remotely, Julio Ricardo Varela, editorial director at Futuro Media, co-host of the In the Thick podcast and founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome, Julio. Hey, Kelly. Glad to have you. And Marcella Garcia, columnist for the Boston Globe. Hello again, Marcella. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Well, let's start where the crisis is, even if it's not uh, deemed one, and that's at the southern border. As I've said, the Biden administration is resisting calling it that. There's been a lot of movement in the last few days. First, uh, the administration said, no, we're not going to let you uh, media take pictures. Then uh, some congresspersons went down, took some pictures, and others released pictures. And now the Biden administration itself did so. They are working on it, as they say. Um, They are concerned, and it's a humanitarian situation as they see it. Before we start, here's Roberta Jacobson, President Biden's border czar, speaking about why the surge in migrants at the border may have occurred just as the U.S. changed presidents. We've seen surges before. Surges tend to respond to hope. And there was a significant hope for a more humane policy after four years of, you know, pent-up demand. So I don't know whether I would call that a coincidence, but I certainly think that the idea that a more humane policy would be in place may have driven people to make that decision. Except, Marcella, as you have written, actually, it's not a surge. This is something of it's almost normal now of what's what's been happening at the border. There are obviously some some specific changes, but you're concerned that uh, the way that it's being framed misses the bigger picture. Yeah, well, more than a surge, it's actually these are just seasonal movements. We've seen we have enough data year, you know, dating decades, right, that we are able to sort of predict what the seasonal movements look like. And this is exactly what happens. You know, it starts to ramp up around spring and, you know, goes through summer and then it kind of quiets down. And and again, it's just, it's just a seasonal sort of uptick, but it's not a surge. It's not a crisis. Then again, you know, it's all about context, right? And, and so right now, I guess, you know, one of the points that I try to make in, in my column is that a lot of the, the reporting out there, and, and I really do not want to generalize, I think that there are incredible work out there being done by certain uh, journalists and, and by certain outlets, but by and large, the 
cable news shows and network news shows who are looking at this or approaching this from a very political lens completely missed miss all this intricacies. Migration is incredibly, incredibly complex. And, and I'm not just talking about what may drive someone from Central America or from Haiti or from wherever to you know, leave their homeland and go, you know, to the border and just, you know, seek asylum, right? And I'm not just saying that. I'm just saying, like, our systems are very complex and they're broken for many, many reasons. And when you come at this story without that baggage, if you will, you know, because mm -hmm. it is, it, it really is a very complex set of factors then you're going to miss a big part of the story and you're going to simplify and you're going to, and then what happens is that Republicans acting in bad faith are just using this for political points and they want to make you believe that it is a crisis. Right. And, and so what happened in the last four years, that wasn't a crisis. And so again, it's, it's, um, it's a matter of perspective, also trying to hold certain media actors accountable for what they report and, and the responsibility that they have for getting the story right. So Julio, weigh in, please. One of the things that I was interested in as this began to get more attention is what happened to those asylum judges? Um, because, you know, I had heard yeah. there was a lot of uh, movement under the Trump administration. Turns out former President Trump apparently filled two thirds of the positions of those judges with his people, many of whom have never done judge stuff in the past and right. are certainly unfamiliar with this area of uh, lawmaking. Uh, so that's a problem. Right. And, and there's a couple of things here. One, no one in the Biden administration should be surprised. I mean, this was kind of a predicted month before. There were actually indications, you know, when you look at the February report by uh, Customs and Border Protection, it would be the 10th straight month of increases. So in talking to people who are working on this in both um, inside the administration and just immigrant rights activists, yes, what Trump and Stephen Miller and the sort of anti-immigrant movement that has become the lobbying arm of the Republican Party, they made it really hard. You know, you look at Title 42 with, you know, closing the border because of a pandemic and just made it extremely hard with Remain in Mexico. So undoing that was something that the Biden administration was planning on doing. There were indications that that was going to take months and we're seeing it, right? So you're adding what Marcel is saying to what sort of this undoing in the middle of a pandemic that they had, the Biden administration has to sort of address. And I don't think they have the right response to it yet. Would it have been better if they just right away said, listen, we know what's going on and we're just, here's what we're doing as opposed to sort of. Yeah, yeah they weren't as vocal. They, they did say it, but it wasn't like what was coming out on January 20th or even during the transition. Like there was, there was like a couple of reports. But to get back to Marcella's point about media accountability and semantics, I do think now we are seeing such a disappointment of American media in framing the story. So I'll just give you one specific example now that, you know, I, I am an editorial director and I get to like publish stories on immigration. So we have refused, uh, as of last week, we no longer use the word surge to describe people. And I actually talked to the Associated Press earlier this week, but they admitted that, um, and this is the vice president of editorial standards, that words like surge and breaching the border, which is in an article that we refuse to publish, uh, were mistakes. 
and that the debate needs to still look at this through more of a neutral, unemotional language mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that can help try to frame this a little bit better because I do agree with Marcella. I feel like I'm watching ESPN and it's like, here come the migrants and here comes the border patrol. And it's become so simplistic and American journalists who are kind of coming late to this, who are parachuting into this story again, not to overgeneralize. There are some great reporters out there who are trying to do the work, but it has become sensationalized. I do think it's this sort of like, we need to prove that we're tough on Biden now because Trump was so horrible. And I think we've lost a lot of the humanity of this debate. And I'm actually kind of glad that the Associated Press actually saw that because they are the gold standard of journalism, in my opinion, and they are syndicated everywhere. And I've noticed since last week that they've started to like avoid more of that sensationalized language. When you use a word like breaching the border, and that is in an article, March 18th, <laughs> people can look it up. It's like an invasion. Like that's how they're trying to portray this. And I think that's a problem. That is a huge problem in this as well. So I don't know if the Biden administration really has it together yet, but I do think that there's some indications that they're trying. They're trying to make it more humane. Um, but when you have a system that is based on border enforcement, you know, when border agents say we're not babysitters, I'm like, of course you're not babysitters because we have border patrol stations and detention facilities and temporary holding cells on the border. We don't have daycare centers. You know what I mean? So I think like there's a lot there that is completely getting missed in the context of all this. You know, it can't improve much if what is happening is that it's put in the context, the overall context of immigration, which is where it should be, but in a way that whips up everybody because that is already a third rail issue, right. which has never been addressed properly, right. you know, by lawmakers. So here we are. Okay, well, let me move on to another hot <laughs> button issue. Right? <laughs> well, no, because, yeah. I mean, I, that needs to be said, that that's one exactly. of the reasons why this language and some of the nuance that Marcella has just pointed out is gone is because of that. It's something that is still remains unaddressed. Right. So in the next situation that we have discussed a lot here on Under the Radar, which is the, the paucity of resources given to communities of color, and the fact that the rates of infection of COVID among Latinos, in fact, you even made it more specific, Julio, on one of our conversations about young Latinos. The numbers are there. The data is collected. And yet the vaccine, now that it's available, um, has not been as available as it should be. And one of the shining examples, unfortunately, is right here in Massachusetts, in Chelsea, that's one of our communities, hardest hit. Everybody at this point should know that story. So I have to say, I mean, I know I'm not supposed to be shocked. I'm shocked that they then were shortchanged when the COVID relief bill came out, Marcella. Yeah, this is a story that has kind of, you know, speaking about under the radar, right? Um, it just hasn't gotten enough attention. I wrote an editorial about this because there's a fix. Um, but at the end of the day, this this is unprecedented amount of money, right, that the federal government passed, the $1.9 trillion. And one incredible aspect or one thing that this package had that differed from previous, like the CARES Act and other relief packages that have passed before, was that this actually had a pot of money 
that was going to be sent direct to the cities and towns, you know, to deal with the effects of the pandemic, right? And this is a COVID relief package. You would think that they would have taken into account impact in the pandemic, but they didn't. And this is completely on Congress. Mm. Congress, apparently in their effort to pass the American Rescue Plan fast, you know, they decided to use a formula from an unrelated federal program that had never been tested or used at this scale. Um, and so it essentially created winners and losers. And, you know, it, it, it divided up the money with no regard to COVID-19 impact. And it was honestly, it is shocking and completely disappointed because it is on our federal delegation. They have defended themselves saying, look, we knew this was going to happen. We knew about these inequities. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a zero-sum game. You only have a set amount of money, and you know that there will be winners and losers, but if you're not dividing the money by COVID-19 impact, you know, you're creating a terrible inequity because you're making it worse. You're making the pandemic impact worse on these hard-hit communities. Long story short, our delegation is saying, look, we always intended to make these communities whole via another pot of money. Um, but that part of money is controlled by the state. Mm. And so now it's upon, it's incumbent upon our governor to make communities like Chelsea Hall. I mean, just to give you a quick example, again, like you say, Kali, correctly, there isn't a single person in the state and probably beyond that hasn't read about Chelsea, honestly, um, and how it became an epicenter of the virus for many, many reasons. And yet they're only getting $11 million when Communities like Newton and Brookline are getting three, six, eight times that amount. Wow. Randolph is getting $3 million. Randolph, mm. which again has was identified by the state as a community that was hardest hit by the pandemic, right? So again, there's an opportunity here for the Baker administration to bring these communities up that were shortchanged. But at the end of the day, no matter how you look at this, I think this was a failure of our Congress, uh, of our members of Congress that were not, I mean, they control the purse right. strings. Right. This is one thing that Congress does. They control the money and they are able to say, I'm going to bring, or, or I'm going to advocate for my community, right? And so it, it sounded like they did not want to drag this on and think of another formula because apparently it's very hard to do that. <laughs> apparently it's very hard to find a formula that divides cities and you know money to cities and towns that they had to use and now did it. This formula was created in 1974. It's older than I am. Only by a year, but still. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the inequities exist. I mean, it, even beyond before COVID, this program, the, the way it does, it divides communities that are 50,000 people, um, larger than 50,000 people, and 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 you know, and, and under. So. The ones that have more population get a lot more money, right. but it's it's not it's like progressively a lot more money. So again, it's it's basically very very um, it's tragic, honestly, and, and it's outrageous that there hasn't been a lot more attention to this um, because again, the Baker administration has an opportunity to, to fix it, but you know they did not create this problem actually. Yeah, yeah right. So Julio, and and just to be clear. Governor Baker is defending himself in this moment about, you know, what some people believe are his failure to get on top of the vaccine rollout to begin with. And part of that had to do with not targeting, which is something he didn't want to do, communities of color 
where the rates of infection were highest. Right. And I mean, this is the just the latest example of how systemic inequality has represented and dictated this country for centuries. I mean, you know, focusing on the vaccine aspect of it, I know when I saw the globe earlier this month, when they did the front page on vaccination rates for Latino communities, you know, Latino dominant communities in, in Massachusetts, I mean, it wasn't even close, the, the rates between Latino residents of cities and, and white residents. It was, I mean, it was, well, we're talking like 2% in Lawrence of Latinos, right? And nearly, uh, you know, half of Lawrence's white residents. Think about that. So, you know, I've said this before. I mean, I think when we were on at the start of this, you know, lockdown, Callie, I said the biggest story that's going to be missed is how black and brown and yep. other BIPOC communities are going to lose in this coronavirus pandemic, how they're going to be more devastated. And here we are. We're increasing the inequality gap about a story, to be honest with you, that I always thought was told more through the lens of white privilege, especially in Massachusetts. I mean, when we think about it, it's, you know, Marcella, I thought of Marcella's uh, original op-ed, right, Marcella, last year about Chelsea, where it was like, hey, it's happening here. Hello, the epicenter's here, here in Chelsea, in Massachusetts. Yeah. When you think about Governor Baker, that was not part of the, of what those, all those daily press conferences were be. And it's mind boggling to me that here we are, in a state that is praised, praised globally for being the state of healthcare. You know, we are the place. And, you know, just talking to other people in other states, Massachusetts dropped the ball. But then when you look at Congress, using a formula based on, you know, that's almost 50 years old, you know, I'll reveal my age, that just speaks to the deeper issues of representation and systemic uh, problems in in our political system that yeah. just haven't really changed, Callie. I just so people understand, you know, you mentioned the the low rates of vaccination in Lawrence, I think you said specifically, but overarchingly a month ago, the stats were 16% of white people in the state had been vaccinated, uh 5% of I don't it might not even been yeah. 5 of African Americans and Three percent of yes. Latinos. May I just make a, a very quick point distinguishing between why is it important that Chelsea was churching in this manner? Because as you, so there, there there's basically two things, right? The state, the, what what the state controls and what the state decides to do. And the state is completely one hundred percent deciding on how to roll out the vaccine, right? But then this part of money um, is right. obviously again, you know, came from Congress. If Chelsea had not been shortchanged, if Chelsea had been giving, I don't know, 50 million, uh, 40, even 40 million, right? I mean, Holyoke got more money, which again, there's a lot more, there's a lot of need and poverty in Holyoke, but Chelsea was hard, what, hit hard, harder by the pandemic than Holyoke. If you look at COVID-19 right. cases, burden, right. et cetera. If it were to get 40, in Chelsea, advocates in Chelsea were still going to go to the state and ask for more money. Because there's the need is still very clear, and so now they're they're starting from a lower point, right? And so money that could have been used for the vaccine by the state, by the state, right? Right. For vaccine, for misinformation, vaccine hesitancy, yeah. vaccine mm -hmm. clinics, whatever you want to call it, 
Now they wanna they need to give it to Chelsea for the municipal needs in the into block holes in their budget. That was the original point of this money to, to directly to go to cities and towns, right? And so again, it's like if you're starting from a very unequal treatment, you know, position, then like Julio said, and this is the whole point of this story, these inequities are just going to get mm-hmm. deeper. And 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 it is and it, yes, and again, what drives me insane is that yes, we we. We all can blame the Baker administration, but it's also on our federal delegation. They are also dropping the ball and they need to be called out on that and own it. Own it because they're saying they're pointing fingers. They're saying, look, we all knew that this was going to happen. But, you know, this is why we send all these billions to the state. Well, why didn't you say that earlier? You know, the the people in Chelsea are very disappointed and incredibly they feel threatened. Mm-hmm. They, they like I've spoken to people who have cried on the phone with me, saying, yeah. "I feel as if the stories of sadness and struggle of my community were not enough, and were not sad enough. I feel used. Yeah. I feel as a prop that I was used as a prop because guess what? The members of our delegation waste no time going to Chelsea for photo ops, and so yeah. this is where it matters." If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me is Julio Ricardo Varela of Futuro Media and Marcella Garcia of the Boston Globe. It's our Latinx roundtable. I like to, you know, round out these conversations about uh, vaccine equity by making the statement that I think people need to still hear every time, which is until every single person in every community is vaccinated, there is no herd immunity. So this is everybody's problem. You know what I mean? This is everybody's issue. So just want to just make that clear. Just one point while we're on vaccines. Uh, There has been a lot of discussion about African-Americans and hesitancy for past medical problems and issues, um, but not enough uh, directed or thought about in terms of Latinos. And it turns out there are just as many issues from both the past and, we have to say, probably right now, uh, currently. So as many people have pointed out, that a lot of Latinos, like African-Americans, were sterilized in the 20th century. So they have a lot of hesitancy as well. Though, just to make the point, that doesn't mean people would not take the vaccine. So here's a, um, this is Mina Perez. She's a polio survivor. And she says why she's hesitant to take the COVID-19 vaccine because of her experiences with medical treatment as a child. During my, my upbringing, I've always suffered in my immune system, uh, my nerves. And so I've uh, been very cautious on, being, on getting shots because of what I went through as a little girl, all the experimental shots that they gave me for this or that to help me walk. So I just want to put that out there because that hasn't been discussed. I'm just going to get a brief response from, from each of you about the hesitancy. <laughs> I think, again, it goes back to the structural problems of this country. You know, even back then, if you think about it, you know, historically, you have marginalized communities. There's a history of the United States not having the best interests of everyone in the country. Like it's, you know, that's pretty, that's an understatement. But I mean, as a Puerto Rican, you know, there's plenty of uh, chronicled uh, cases of, you know, women being sterilized in Puerto Rico um, in the middle of the 20th century. So it's there, right? But I think to be honest with you, I think it's very simplified. Like, I think it's too easy uh, an excuse. Yeah, but not, not only that, that I, that's exactly I don't, right. I don't, yeah, I, I don't think there's anyone, like, it's what you said, Marcella, and what you wrote, and I, I see it as well. It's like, 
it's it's about access to power, right? It's about access to it's it's a right. call for respect and understanding that these communities need to be treated as equally as other communities in the state, right? That that's always been the problem. Vaccine right? hesitancy is... exists in every single community. White people, yeah. black people, Latino it, yeah. people, correct? And, yeah. and, and and I'm not gonna deny it, but the, for the for right. the state to say that that's to blame for the low rates right. of Latino vaccination, it's a cop out because exactly. why didn't you do something in the first place to tackle? Why didn't you have a program to tackle right. vaccine misinformation? Instead, they bungled the trans the, the the translation of their slogan to advocate for more people to get vaccinated. Exactly. exactly. And so, in, if you're going to blame it, at least you know, at least say, well, we tried to combat it. They didn't even do that. And so again, and, and, and to, for them to single out Latinos too, it, it's very disingenuous again, because I mean, the anti-vaxxers, come on. I mean, why there's, again, there's vaccine hesitancy. Like you said, Julio, vaccine hesitancy takes a lot of forms. It's complicated. Right. It's not just an anti-vaxxer or someone who's responding to misinformation. It's, so, it's also someone who may not have access to a car and is just thinking, oh my God, it's, it's a lot. Right. there's a lot of barriers for me to get to Gillette Stadium to get vaccinated. I don't know if I want to get vaccinated. I don't want to go. I don't know if I want to go through all that trouble. The trouble. Like, right, could, exactly. Yes, it's right. the barriers too. Right. Oh, no, I think that's that has to be made clear that a lot of what people are calling hesitancy has some real yeah. on the ground issues Absolutely. that don't often get uh, often get. And I just uh, heard about a new study that uh, demonstrated that among people who had expressed hesitancy on in whatever form, you know, after yeah. you talk to them about exactly. 10, 15 minutes, usually it was worked out because they either were walking away with no, because they had misinformation or no access. That was no either true one. advocates. So, That's the know. thing. If you look yeah. like I was just saying, yeah. there's two yeah. Massachusetts. It's what Marcella's saying. There's right. the Massachusetts. That's like, oh, we know this community. And then there's like, oh, we don't understand this community. So we're going to tra- do bad translations or who's advocate. You know, that that's the disconnect in all this. And, and it's unfair. It's it's not it's too easy an excuse. All right. Okay. So I'm I'm okay. closing in on my time, but I want to get in two things. So I'm letting you know that right now. <laughs> One is uh, the uh, Puerto Rico Self-Determination Act that has been advanced by Representatives uh, Nidia Velasquez and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Bob Menendez. Um, response oh from each of you. <laughs> Briefly. <laughs> um, yeah, there was a bill. Yeah, there was a bill presented last week that basically is an alternative to a statehood bill that was presented um, earlier in March by pro statehood advocates in Puerto Rico. And basically, for people that need to understand this, uh, to be as simple as possible, you do have Democrats split on, on the political status of Puerto Rico. The Senate delegate, both Markey and Senator Warren, Senator Markey and Senator Warren, backed this bill from Velasquez and AOC. But the thing that people need to know is that you now have two bills in Congress with with close to 140 sponsors congressionally across both the bills, both in the House and the Senate, about like, what are you going to do with Puerto Rico? Is it going to become a state or is it going to be, you know, a convention status and we mm-hmm. get to decide again and they're delegates? It's super complicated. But but there are indications, at least, that Puerto Rico is getting more attention on the Hill and a lot there's a lot of hope that all the dividing factions at least at least in Puerto Rico start actually talking to each other. So mm. I am like optimistically cautiously hopeful about trying to resolve colonialism. How's that, Callie? That's good. Uh Marcella? 
We, um, in the editorial board last year, we actually supported the self-termination bill that AOC filed with Nidia Velasquez last year. I, I think it's the same bill, if I'm not mistaken, that it was refiled, right, um, Julio? So it's... Um, there are a couple of adjustments. There's ranked choice voting, but yes, in general it is. Oh, great. Make it more complicated for Puerto Ricans. <laughs> everything. <laughs> Another conversation, but yes. Like I said, we supported it and I support it. Absolutely, 100%. I I rather see that go through, the self-determination okay. one. All right. So finally, I just want to mention, because we too have to look to culture, because we do, because we live in it, um, that here we are, Oscar So White continues. A lot of Latinos overlooked. And I know Oscars aren't the be-all and end-all, but that is a, it's a, it's a cultural moment. And just to make it clear, this is Benicio Del Toro's 2001 Oscar acceptance speech. He was the last Latinx actor to win an award for Best Supporting Actor for Traffic. Thank you. Um, I'd like to thank the members of the Academy. I'd also like to thank Steven Soderbergh, Laura Bigford, Edswick, Marshall, Rick and Eileen, everyone at USA Films, and uh, i also like to dedicate this to two locations where we shot this film. Uh, we went from Washington, D.C. all the way to San Diego, California. I'd like to dedicate this to the people of Nogales, Arizona, and Nogales, Mexico. Thank you. So there you have it. 2001. Mm-hmm. It's a long time ago. Yeah, but I don't think a lot of people know that Shaka King is like Afro-Panamanian. So, no, I did not know so that. There you so there you go. I didn't so know. Shaka King, <laughs> who's who's uh, um, Judas and the, the Black director. Messiah, the director. His mom is from Barbados and his dad is from Panama. And I think part of this gets into the complexities of what it means to be Latino or Latina. You know, he has gone on record talking about his Afro-Panamanian identity. And there's a really cool interview from like Sundance in 2013 so I also think not only does it talk about Latino representation, but like what type of Latino representation, because Shaka King identifies, you know, talks about his Panamanian roots and it gets into more of the complexities of that. And I'm so those are the things that I'm kind of like looking more and more of, Callie. Like those are those are the stories I like to I, I like to celebrate. Well, the reason we raise this, because I know people listening to this saying, well, you don't have to get nominated. I know you don't. Uh, but one out of every four moviegoers is Latino. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, there, there's audience and there is work, as you've just pointed out. So we're crawling towards some kind of diversity, Marcella, but boy, it's hard. It's interesting because I don't, it, it probably is a consequence of the pandemic and, and the Oscars are going to be uh, virtual, right? Uh, just as the yeah. uh, yes. Golden Globes were. I think there's been a lot less attention paid to these issues now that I feel like it's not as big a, a thing it was. Like, I had no idea. I guess they assumed there weren't many Latinos nominated, which is a very sad state of affairs to begin with, like to start with from a very low bar. Uh, but I also have been hearing a lot of outreach around it. And I think it's because they've lost a little bit of, I guess, their importance in popular culture. Uh, and this is just my speculation on my part. But because they've gone virtual and because they've gone, you know, essentially, it's just a different show now. I feel like they've lost, um, you know, the attention, I think, that we would normally be paying to these issues now. I didn't get the sense that people weren't as responsive or outraged at the lack of diversity. Yeah. Maybe it's because, again, it's become a, such a sad state of affairs that it doesn't even register anymore, uh, which is its own problem, you know. But Well, I think it, it also may have to do with 
for the first time, you know, there's been a lot for the last couple of years about their total wipeout of, you know, Asians, Asian-Americans. And that's improved, as we can see, by some films and some acting nominations. But, you know, the point is, is that, you know, when people do good work, it should not just be an automatic shutout. That's all, you know, that it's a cultural moment. Right, right. We all have to pay attention to. That's going to do it for us. And I thank both of you for joining me. Thank you, Callie. Thank you so much for having me, Callie. Julio Ricardo Varela is the editorial director at Futura Media, co-host of the In the Thick podcast and founder of Latino Rebels. Marcella Garcia is a columnist for the Boston Globe. Coming up, COVID continues to impact the food and wine industries. Nobody's celebrating, so nobody's buying bubbly wines. Restaurants are pivoting again, trying to keep their doors open with new takes on menus and business models. And what about the latest TikTok pasta dish? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley, this week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, champagne sales have gone flat during the pandemic as bubbly drinkers postpone celebrations. Out of the fast food drive through and onto restaurant menus, the fried chicken sandwich is even more popular. And COVID victims who've suffered a loss of taste and smell have brought a new appreciation for how vital both senses are, especially enjoying food and wine. The latest food and wine trends with our food and wine experts. Joining me remotely, Jonathan Alsop, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Kelly. Also with me, Amy Traverso, food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of GBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of the recently updated The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Well, we got to start off with, you know, where the chicken is, because it has just gotten crazy. Um, When people say there are chicken sandwich wars, there are. So let's just take a listen um, to all of the fast food chains advertising their fried chicken sandwiches. Introducing Wendy's new classic chicken sandwich. McDonald's new crispy chicken sandwich. The little thing I love about Chick-fil-A's new grilled spicy deluxe is that grilled chicken that we all know and love with the grilled marks that's super juicy. Tell your grandkids, because we'll be telling ours. The new crispy chicken, only at Burger King. The sandwich is back. For those who haven't tasted that crispy chicken on toasted brioche, it's like... Mm, mm, mm. I'm experiencing some things right now. Look at you looking all special. But you won't really get it until you get it. Love that chicken from Popeye. That's just to give everybody a sense of how serious it is. And oh, by the way, um, Kentucky Fried Chicken is uh, has a new sandwich. And Taco Bell is hinting that a new chicken item is coming to the menu. But Amy, it's what's a in- taco. It's, <laughs> it's, it's so- like a bread taco. But it's isn't that interesting? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what's so fascinating is that, you know, while all of us apparently are inhaling a lot of chicken sandwiches, by the way, the uh, Popeye's, the 
original Popeye's sandwich people that started all this craze, um, their sales went up some 42 percent back in 2019 when they first introduced the sandwich. So you can understand why other companies are trying to get in on it. But Amy, what's interesting to me is that you're noticing that restaurants are now picking up on the craze and chicken is on the menu. Yeah. Fried chicken sandwiches are all, particularly in this moment when there's a lot of takeout um, and restaurant menus in general are getting more casual, the fried chicken sandwich is proving to be, I think, a top seller. And so I'm seeing it on, I'd say the majority of takeout menus that I look at um, are are featuring a re- and what you know a really delicious fried chicken sandwich. You know, everything from the kind of you know, Nashville hot style to um, the kind of spicy honey style um, to, you know, more of a classic pickle fried chicken on a brioche bun. They're really all over the map, but they're good. And, you know, and then there's the classic like Coast Cafe and, you know, Cambridge Fort um, just doing excellent fried chicken. I think they, they were doing great fried chicken in Boston long before these new arrivals <laughs> came along. But it, it's, uh, it's, and it's a shout out deal. to Slade's. Um, people may not know that. That's in the South End. Their fried chicken is so good. It'll make you want to stab somebody uh, if you can't get to it. I mean, it is, it is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> they do fried chicken wings that are just off the chain, if I may say so. Oh, so, um, nice. Amy, this is going to continue then. Uh, do you think, you know, past shut-in time, are, are we really in for a, a chicken, fried chicken sort of renaissance for a while? I think so. I think people see it as a, um, I can't say they see it as a healthier alternative to a burger, but no. <laughs> um, maybe a little, you know, I think people are aware of maybe chicken being a less uh, environmentally problematic um, protein than the beef. So, um, and, you know, I think also people are just looking for that classic comfort food. So I think, I think those will stick around, although I do think it will probably It'll probably have a little bit of the same problem that cupcakes had, you know, five years ago, which is mm. we, we, we binged on them and then we got a little tired of them. But it's got some more months in it for sure. Okay. Well, I hope I hope it's not I hope it's not like the McRib. Oh no. Where <laughs> it becomes incredibly popular and then these monsters take it away <laughs> and then bring it back. I hope, I, <laughs> the McRib that is that. not a rib, by the way, just so people know. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, it's a, no, a McRib. Yes. Um, so, Jonathan, when I eat fried chicken, um, I like something bubbly, and it's usually champagne. Um, I'm curious, A, before I go into a champagne story, you tell me what you drink um, with fried chicken. Well, that is, um, that is totally the right call in terms of a wine match. Um, now, the perfect wine pairing with fried chicken is, um, well, it's a wine called beer. And, oh. um, <laughs> and so, it's, it's so, Callie, you're on exactly the right track. We, we, would, we would have beer, but you know wine people. We just won't quit. So, so what we're looking for is wines that are as much like beer as possible. Vino Verde, sparkling, mm. bubbly, Prosecco, Cava. Um, I like you putting fancy French champagne with, like, down-home fried chicken. Um, it's delicious. But I think you can also <laughs> make the same thing with a $10 bottle of Prosecco, too. That is true. But Vino Verde is my favorite summer wine, so that's coming up anyway. So oh, yeah. that, and it has, it's just a frisson. It's not a real bubbly, but it's right. it's delicious it's and it's cheap, CO, so it's good. Yeah, it's just got a little CO2 in it and kind of brighten it up. But um, 
That's exactly Perfect. right. Perfect. So there you go. All right. So back to champagne, Jonathan. Yeah. Um, sad news for the champagne sellers that the sales fell during this uh, period of COVID lockdown um, by 18 percent. That's a lot because people are just deciding, you know what, I don't want to celebrate um, with champagne, so I'm just going to postpone it. It's not like it's less popular, though, I don't think. Well, absolutely. I mean, I mean, people have these days um, at least the feeling that they have so much less to celebrate. Um, you think about, you know, restaurant sales, which are a huge, um, you know, which are a huge outlet for champagne sales. Kind of the good news from champagne is that the expected sales for 2020 to be down 30 percent, and they were only down 18. Mm. So I guess that's sort of good news. Um, one of the issues that's coming up today around champagne and sparkling wine is people wondering if after they get their COVID vaccine, can they celebrate? You know, can they can they pop a bottle of sparkler, bubbly or whatever and celebrate their um, vaccination? And the general, there's no CDC guidelines on this, but the, the general rule is in moderation, yes, you can. But don't lose your mind. <laughs> <laughs> don't lose your mind. Um, and in fact, the advice is, if anything, don't drink before the vaccine, because we do know that we, we do know that alcohol can really impair the immune system in a in a big way. But there's no there's no sense that celebrating with a bottle of bubbly after your vaccination is going to hurt anybody. Okay, Amy, restaurants are still you know, trying to stay alive, as we know, in various ways. But so I'm fascinated by your noting that a number of them are pivoting with their business models and the content of their menus. They're just really shifting stuff around. And I guess that would harken back to our first conversation about fried chicken, adding that to the menus. Mm-hmm. Um, but what other ways are restaurants pivoting to new business models? Yeah, there's so, it's, 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 I'm breathless trying to follow this because, you know, the innovation is, crazy and exciting and yet we're also losing restaurants like eastern standard which is you know devastating to the boston scene um but and then meanwhile restaurants like mita are expanding so everything is happening in a thousand directions but some examples of what how restaurants are coping include creating pop-ups within existing restaurants uh for example tim and bronwyn bikeman who have uh, bronwyn in union square in somerville they turned they have a pizza restaurant which they've now turned into a sort of contact-free bagel shop and cafe called turen in union square um and then meanwhile at dambara in cambridge um david bazergan is doing uh, a pop-up called uh, Capalbo's, which is Italian-American food, Um, you know, a lot more accessible. He's producing large format takeout meals for families. So, you know, it's it's a restaurant within a restaurant with a takeout operation, very different from what he was doing before, which was more formal. We've talked about, you know, Alcove has this sort of pantry. It's doing takeout as well as pantry items that you can have delivered. And then there's restaurants like Oleana and Sofra, and Sycamore that are doing kind of, that have been doing a community supported restaurant model to get them through the winter. They're now transitioning back to the more standard dining in and takeout as as the restrictions are being lifted. But this was an interesting model. And I wonder if this will survive the pandemic in some form, which is basically you sign up, you pay, um, you know, a certain amount per week and you get a box of food. Um, it, it certainly ensures a more consistent revenue stream for the restaurant. 
Um, and obviously, this being such a difficult business, even in the best of times, I wonder if the appeal of a steady business, steady um, supply in terms of, you know, having steady orders for your suppliers every week, knowing what you need to prepare, knowing how much food you're going to sell. There, there's something about that that may stick around. So I'm interested to see uh, whether this kind of subscription model sticks in any way once we start eating in restaurants again. I think it's going to because COVID and people having to stay in through some of the holidays, a lot of restaurants did special meals and you had to order, you know, well in advance and all of that. So, of course, they knew exactly how much food to prepare, Mm -hmm. how many sides, how many this, how many that. And I thought to myself, this has got to be better for them to know exactly how many people to prepare for. This just got to be more, you know, uh, financially stabilizing because you you can plan. So I assume that's going to continue in some way because it was very effective. But who knows? It's probably a big pain to do, I'm sure. But, you know, I think if I think farmers have a lot to teach restaurateurs about doing CSAs, uh, which they've been doing for years and years. And a lot of us are used to that. So, you know, maybe we've been conditioned to pick up a box of vegetables every week and maybe we could equally be conditioned to pick up mm. a box of prepared foods that we can reheat or, you know, sauces and things that we can add to pastas. So I'm really I'm excited about this. I mean, I I, I don't want to be too rosy. Obviously, there's so much suffering right now, but I'm 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 in, I'm in awe of how restaurants have been so nimble and so innovative. And so I just think exciting things are ahead if we can just get through this next couple of months. I'm with you. And hey, Jonathan, the way we get through this next month, because it's Women's History Month, is we might head to Rebel Rebel uh, or any bar like that uh, where they're celebrating women, women being in charge of this wine bar, by the way. Um, And I just love it. I'd love to be able to say their mantra, but it's a little bit racy for family radio. <laughs> so everything, everything, everything about them, everything about them is a little bit racy and um, and out there. Um, yes, their motto, um, their motto: "We give a f darn." Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we give a darn is quite a quite a. It's, it's hard to it's hard to believe that 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 um, caring is actually a, a major market differentiator. But I love this mm. place as soon like I mean, of course they're not open for their standard bar scene right now, but they will be. So Lauren Friel, the the owner and the woman who founded this, on the website and over the bar it says, Leave your misogyny, your homophobia, your racism, your classism, your ableism, your patriarchy, your gender bias, and all your other ideas at BS. the door, because that will get you <laughs> kicked out real quick. And I love it. I just, I, yeah, I just love everything about that. And someday we won't need Women's History Month. But until we do, these women are really um, doing a lot of interesting things in wine and hospitality and just changing the whole emotional quality of what you think a bar or a wine bar is or represents. So it's a natural wine bar in Somerville's Bow Market. So people know how to find them and support them. And, uh, you know, April 1st, we're open up again for outside dining. And so, but I just love them. And and I think they're just a perfect example Mm -hmm. of what Women's History Month should be about in wine. Oh, yeah. Um, I want to talk about a little bit about uh, so many of, there's been several stories now about specific people 
and just in general, the fact that the COVID-19 main symptom that a lot of people hear about are the loss of, of your sense of, of taste and smell. And, you know, just what that does uh, when you talk about food and wine, I think it's helped elevate uh, interest in really how those senses play a part in how we appreciate you know, what we eat and what we drink. Um, but just yeah. to get the two of you to comment on that, because I think it's um, it's been very interesting for a lot of people to hear about and read about and understand. Yeah, it's, a, it's an alarming thing that so many people will, you know, be living with loss of taste. I mean, many, 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 most people who lose their sense of taste and, and smell with COVID experience that as a temporary symptom that, you know, is restored um, mm. afterwards. But a good number of people are going to have the permanent condition. And you think it's sort of a disposable sense, you know, compared with, say, the challenges of navigating the world without sight. But um, but in fact, there are there are safety issues. I, I mm-hmm. know a guy who um, lost his sense of smell after a viral illness as a child. It wasn't COVID, but he it was a permanent loss. And, you know, he can't smell when something's burning in the kitchen and has had, you know, a fire in his kitchen because of that. Um, so there, and then there's sort of this, just depression of losing something that is the source of so much pleasure. Um, so it's not a, it's not a minor loss. Mm-mm. No. Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, this is something that people in, in the hospitality, wine, food, beverage industry are really concerned about. It would be just such an utterly, unthinkably tragic thing for someone who, who loved food or loved wine or loved perfume. I mean, we think about people in the spice industry. We think about people in the perfume industry. This is the sort of thing that not only would change you know, the quality of a person's life. But this is the sort of thing that could totally end a career. When you really appreciate wine, you put your nose down in the glass. because that's everything. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's 99% uh, percent of it. And, you know, we, as, and I'll just speak for myself as a North American, um, you know, we Americans don't particularly like to smell things, you know, unless it's like baking bread or something super pleasant. So I think, you know, unlike other cultures where, you know, aromas are much more accepted and people um, are much more in tune with that sense. This is something, you know, as 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 as, uh, as you said, Amy, or uh, as you said that that people think of it as a, as one of the throwaway, one of the minor, secondary senses. But um, it's really, really not. It's just tied in with taste, and it's just tied in with pleasure overall. Well, let me move on to something that a lot of people have, have taken pleasure from, and that's the TikTok feta <laughs> recipe, Amy. <laughs> this thing is crazy. So just briefly, you take some cherry tomatoes, you throw some, you know, uh, herbs on them, and you put a feta oh, cheese and a big yeah. block of feta cheese. You stick it in the oven. It melts all together, and people have lost their mind. It uh, started from Mackenzie Smith, a blogger behind Grill Cheese Social, um, she posted it. She's gotten uh, 3 million views from her video, hashtag baked feta pasta. Lizzo recently made a vegan pasta dish based on this. Amy, why is this? And as one of the food critics uh, wrote, said he didn't think this was so tasty because A, feta cheese is not a big melting cheese, one. And two, he preferred to have fresh cherry tomatoes. And so anyway, um, just curious about what you think about all the hype over this uh, baked 
feta pasta? I think it's a good recipe. It's you need to add a little pasta water to the to what once you've baked it off. Um, you want to because you're cooking your pasta on the stove and then you're baking the feta and the tomatoes together. And you want to take a ladle full of the pasta water and put that in with so because it is a little bit dry if you don't know, loosen it up a little bit. But it serves a lot of purposes. It's that sort of you only use two pots to have or two dishes. You only have two dishes to clean to make this meal. There's something kind of casserole about it, but also modern. So you don't feel embarrassed to be making a cozy casserole. <laughs> you can feel like you're still a cool millennial or whatever, um, or Gen Z. Um, and I think uh, it's big, bold flavors. You know, it's acidity and salt and creaminess and herbs and spice. You can put some chili flakes in there. It really is a well, I think it's a very well-conceived recipe. Um, and it makes people feel like it's a technique that it's, it's technique-y, but it's also mm -hmm extremely simple. So you're, you know, you're caramelizing tomatoes, which is sort of, it's an amazing way to experience tomatoes. I think I also love fresh ones, but, mm. but yeah, really caramelized um, toma cherry tomatoes. It's a wonderful thing. And caramelized garlic, you know, it's, it, it's smart. I, 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 she deserves credit. I hope she's making money off of it because. Well, I think it came <laughs> from Finland um, and then they, they use it over there and call it something else. But uh and she just sort of, you know, passed it on. Right. Uh, let me just point out that if people are going to rush out to try this recipe, that feta is uh, in short supply because of this. So that's pretty powerful. <laughs> <laughs> so I've seen people do it with cream cheese, which I can't get on board. I have an open mind, but I cannot get on board with cream, the cream cheese, although I'm sure it's creamy. And, you know, I, I just think it would be a little one note. Um there's uh, there's a slightly less common cheese called ricotta salata, uh, which is basically mm -hmm. ricotta that's been drained. It's a it's a little less salty than um, feta, and it's not it's it's a little drier, so it will more it'll crumble as more than melt, but it would be delicious in this preparation. So you could use that. You can find it. At, I know it. I bought it at Whole Foods at cheese shops. That that would that would and work. That works. Halloumi, which uh, won't melt. But yes. it's delicious and bakes well. Well, Jonathan, I just want to point out that wine has been a better than medicine for this 117-year-old woman. What a great... <laughs> a French nun. I mean, what a, Please what a explain. great story. So first of all, 117-year-old Sister Andre. She's the oldest known registered person in Europe. And uh, she um, came down with covid survived COVID, and um, she attributes her survival to her um, daily glass of wine. And um, we've never met, but I would just like to say I totally um, love Sister Andre and love every, everything that she stands for. Um, I especially love her 114th birthday feast. Um, she had foie gras capon with porcini mushrooms and her favorite dessert is baked alaska so hey <laughs> I, i'm just i'm she I'm, knows I'm how sure to live i'm not sure there's a lot of uh, and, and you know when you're 117 like i don't know what you're doing but whatever it is you're doing do not change exactly <laughs> you and you didn't add that she had a glass of port with all of that <laughs> oh yes, yeah. yeah, she's got a great, she's got a great appetite. I like that in a, I like that in a nun. Exactly. And by the way, her favorite food is lobster, Amy. And there's a new trend with people frying lobster 
talking around these parts. Yeah. And, you know, I, I haven't yet had it. I'm a little, I'm a little suspicious because lobster is so delicate, but at the same time, there's a very classic Cantonese dish, which is lobster that's sort of dredged in um, a little mix of cornstarch and flour and cooked with scallions and ginger. And it's so delicious. So I think in, in the right chef's hands, fried lobster could be good. Salty Girl is doing a fried lobster roll. Um, Yankee Lobster over in the Seafar District also has a fried lobster roll. Um, and down in Newport, the, the Newport Lobster Shack on the on the harbor does fried lobster strips, which are kind of like chicken fingers, but with lobster. So um, maybe, you know, they're kind of trying to tag on to the fried chicken <laughs> craze and figure <laughs> everybody wants breaded and fried protein. So let's let's give it a shot. Um, you may be right about that. I don't know. I love lobster so much, um, just drenched in butter. So that's probably the way I'm going to go. <laughs> and I think that's a perfect yeah. place to, to end right now. Um, what would you be drinking with your fried lobster, by the way, Jonathan? Well, one thing that I've been doing that I honestly, in my whole wine life, I've never done before is really ordering wine from external I'm not shopping for wine live, but ordering wine and having it delivered. And there's a wine, a winery called um, Cameron Hughes, and this is their lot 752 Gavi. Gavi is a is a super bright, super lively Italian white wine from northern Italy. And um, I'll send you a snapshot of it. I would. Um, this is something that would definitely be great with the with fried lobster or even you know, the more traditional lobster treatments too. All right. Well, we'll be looking for that to put up on the Under the Radar website. In the meantime, thanks so much, you two, for joining me for this delicious conversation, which I'm now hungry. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Callie. Jonathan Alsop is the founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Amy Traverso is the food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee and author of the updated The Apple Lover's Cookbook. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH. Produced by Wes Martin and engineered by Dave Goodman. Angela Yang is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.